Imagine this. You turn on your television and it just starts playing whatever it wants to play. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the bold new innovation that Netflix are currently experimenting with. I think they think they just invented television. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the streaming service are exploring a TV channel on their service, but what does that experiment say about people being overwhelmed by choice for video online? Also, how did the social media giants fare against the torrent of misinformation in the US presidential election? Plus, are people on the right side of politics in America evacuating major social media platforms for their own apps? And why does Google want to buy a fitness tracker company? All of that and much more coming up. This is your very packed guide to the week of media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fidel and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And we are joined by Angharad Yo, host of Good Game Spawn Point and long distant friend. We haven't had you on the show for ages. We haven't been able to make the times work. It's so happy to be here. You just called me your friend, no take backsies. I have that on record. Yeah, I also said um, happy to be here as though I was here for the <laughs> first time. Uh, I got a letter in the mail from, from a listener complaining about how I say the word muted. So now I have no confidence left in how I use my mouth on this show. Uh, also on the show, joining us from Canada. Familiar voice, but with a new job. Uh, Ariel Bogle is with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. She's an analyst, which I believe makes you a spy, but uh, who can say? Couldn't possibly comment. Great to know. All right. So uh, nothing happened in the last week, certainly nothing momentous and certainly nothing that interacts with the internet. How do you think social media companies handled the barrage of misinformation and dare I say, absolute nonsense that came out of the election. Oh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think uh, quite a few social media platforms did start to pick up the pace a bit more on battling that misinformation. But don't we all think that they've kind of let it go on for so long that it's a bit too little too late? I mean, we did see a whole flood of Trump's recent tweets get flagged with that misinformation and hidden. But at the same time, how long have they been letting him say whatever he wants completely unchecked that people have gotten used to that messaging from him and gotten used to the idea that it is something real, that now that late in the game they're slapping these um, kind of silences on him, people are going, oh, you're censoring him and what he's saying is true and you're just trying to hide that now. So I don't know. I, I think they've done better than they have in the past, but too little too late. Yeah. Part of me, I sort of saw the tweets come through on election day of saying, you know, this may not, not be factual or this race hasn't been called yet. These sort of warning signs over Trump's tweets in particular. I remember just thinking, wouldn't have this has been interesting if this had happened to, I don't know, five years ago. I wonder how different the world would look today. Well, yeah, like it was just said, really, they had been preparing, put policies in place. You know, Facebook, for example, um, was had sort of quashed down on political ads in the wake of the election, fearing the kind of rhetoric that might come from the losing side, which is obviously the Trump side, despite their um, protestations. Have you told them that? <laughs> sure Here's my message to you that. guys. You have lost, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, so it, they have tried, but as you know, it, it is a little too late, and there has been this culture that has been bred on these platforms and in private groups and in o various online spaces. The conversation that's happening uh, 
is really spurred on not by foreign interference, I think, which was the spectre that we were all discussing after 2016, but more domestic efforts at disinformation. Of course, Trump takes the lead on that, but also his children, uh, members of the Republican Party, members of his administration. It's really become a sort of ecosystem of disinformation. Trump sending out these messages that then get interpreted by you know private groups on Facebook, groups on Reddit, groups on like some of the more darker spaces on the internet. But they're also feeding conspiracies up through his administration as well that then get voiced. So it's sort of a, a really disturbing cycle that we're seeing taking place. And it's really hard, I think, for any of these platforms uh, to figure out how to put their sort of finger in the spoke there and cut off that ecosystem. Ariel, have you noticed a change in what's trending, what's getting attention on the internet in the last couple of days? Well, there has been an interesting discussion about what's getting the most uh, interaction on Facebook. So there's a Twitter account set up by a New York Times reporter, Kevin Roos, which tracks over the past 24 hours the most popular link posts on Facebook. Um, by most popular, he's saying most interaction, so most engagement, you know, likes, shares, that type of thing. And people noticed this week that although it had usually been a top 10 of really like right-wing Facebook accounts, Don, uh, Dan Bongino and other figures from that circle for one day, it had sort of turned into New York Times links and others, and people were wildly speculating about Facebook changing its algorithm. And actually, just this morning, Facebook has put out a sort of statement pushing back on that Twitter account specifically and others using the database called CrowdTangle, which lets people sort of measure these interactions, saying it's not really a good measure of what news outlets, what news accounts are getting the most engagement on Facebook. But of course, they don't share that data with uh, the average person and they don't share share it with any journalist, really. So it's really hard for us to come and sort of independently verify exactly what people are seeing on Facebook. The new Biden-Harris administration is uh, obviously going to have a pretty seismic shift on, uh, <laughs> I'm just tempted to say everything about public discourse. But one of the curious parts of this I'm, I'm particularly fascinated about is um, Angharad. How different will a Biden presidency be for Silicon Valley? It's definitely a wait and see, but, you know, Harris is from that San Francisco Bay Area and has lots of good ties and connections and relationships with big tech. Um, big tech was one of, you know, the really big donators to her campaign, and it seems like the relationships are really good there. So I think a lot of people are very hopeful that she's kind of going to be a champion for them. But at the same time, you know, people are saying she used to be a prosecutor. Um, she's not not going to go easy on them and she was involved in the 2018 um, kind of grilling of Facebook over Cambridge Analytica so she has already kind of shown I guess the public that she's not just there to lie in the pockets of big tech and to be their buddy but at the same time I think she has enough uh, kind of personal relationships and connection to the people running these companies that they feel like they might be in a pretty good place with her. Um, so I think there's going to be a little bit of a balance that needs to be played there, but fingers crossed she's not just going to go easy and let them, you know, run free. She kind of has said that there needs to be regulation in that space. So maybe that's what we'll start to see. And we do know that very close to the end of the election, they unveiled where a bunch of their money, their funding was coming from, and a lot of it was coming from major tech donors. Um, there's been this ongoing conversation, uh, Ariel, about potentially breaking up the big tech companies. It's been talked about for a long time in the US. Do we have a sense of where Biden and Harris stand on that kind of action? 
Yeah, the rhetoric has not obviously been as strong as those that have really come out against uh, big tech and in favour of breaking up what they call monopolies, Google and Facebook especially, and that's Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, those people that also uh, ran for Democratic candidacy for the presidency. But it's interesting, even this morning, uh, the Biden team released some of their, I guess they call it, their, not their administration, but people that are helping them transition into the White House. And it was stacked with big tech. It was so interesting. There were representatives from Uber, Airbnb, Amazon. And I think for a lot of people who have been critics of big tech, that was somewhat dismaying. Uh, they thought that potentially it meant that Biden Harris perhaps too close to big tech. But on the other hand, uh, there has been really strong rhetoric from members of their team against Facebook specifically. Uh, even yesterday, Bill Russo, who's a member of Biden's team, went on a huge Twitter rant really against Facebook, um, accusing it of uh, being you know slow to correct misinformation for allowing a uh, all these allegations of voter fraud, completely baseless, to have been, you know, to sort of foment. So Facebook certainly doesn't seem to have a friend in the Biden campaign. But on the other hand, all those other big tech companies are, have a big showing in this transition team. The other big tech I don't story... think Facebook have a friend anywhere, really, <laughs> at this stage. <laughs> what about, um, Angharad, what about TikTok? I mean, we've, we've talked ad nauseum about the complex relationship between <laughs> Trump and TikTok. Do we have a sense of what a new administration means for them? I think that Trump kind of had a bit of a personal vendetta against TikTok. It very much fit into his sort of anti-China view that he was pushing. I don't know of anything that we've heard specifically from Biden and Harris on TikTok specifically yet. But I do kind of get the feeling that maybe they're not going to be as dogged and focused on deplatforming TikTok and getting it out of the US as Trump was. Well, there was an interesting part of the Biden-Harris platform too. They want to specifically look at the relationship between the harassment of women online, white supremacy and you know, violence. So that's really starting to acknowledge that all those sort of factors tie into the kind of activity we've seen from you know, uh, alt-right actors, for example, in the United States. So it's quite an interesting and pretty unprecedented platform and I'm really intrigued to see how that plays out. I'm interested to see where things go with YouTube specifically. I think they, in my mind, have been the biggest ones to lag behind in stopping misinformation. And in fact, you know, they have been highly criticised for having an algorithm that, in fact, pushes things like conspiracy videos and alt-right rhetoric. Um, And I think that they are still lagging behind in that. I haven't seen any major changes to what they're doing to stop that. So... You know, I think that that's the space that I really want to see some big change. I want to echo that too. I think that YouTube, as part of the conversation around election-related disinformation, has really gotten off scot-free in some ways. And really, they had the they told the public the least about what their policies would be going into the election. And post, uh, there's all kinds of mess going on there. Steve Bannon, for example, uh, has a podcast that he streams live on YouTube as well. They've removed one of his videos where he called for Anthony Fauci, the leader of the sort of COVID response in the United States for his head to be put on a pike. So he called for essentially the beheading of a public official. That video got removed, but his account is still there on YouTube overall. And really YouTube has uh, not given any of the kind of data that Facebook and Twitter give the public now and journalists in particular to allow them to scrutinise the platform in any serious way. They've really, uh, I think, lagged behind uh, to a great degree. 
And I definitely haven't seen any kind of flagging of misinformation with the same ease of actually seeing it. It's just not prominent on the platform. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. You are hearing the voices of Angharad Yo, co-host of Good Game Spawn Point, and Ariel Bogle, uh, analyst with the Australian's Strategic Policy Institute. Mark Fennell is my name. And as there has been increased focus on the big name uh, social media companies, it's also given rise to some alternative ones as well. Uh, recently, a uh, social media service has been uh, topping the charts in the US by the name of Parler. What exactly is it, Ariel? It's it's actually been around for a little while, but I think it's had some renewed popularity in recent days after the election when, uh, you know, free speech warriors essentially feel like they're getting censored on Facebook, Twitter and other platforms. So they've turned to Parler, which I think has topped, um, really spiked in downloads. It's essentially a app that... I guess kind of mirrors Twitter most closely. So you can post and then you can retweet, but essentially what they call echo people. So promote their content and you follow people like you do on Twitter too. Uh, But, you know, it's a bit clunky. It's a bit of a closed system. Um, So even though there has been this boost in popularity, I don't really know if it's going to last the distance and become a challenger to those more popular social platforms. I think that you're maybe underestimating how much people will put up with really awful looking platforms. I mean, Reddit (laughs) is not a pretty forum at all. And um, 4chan and 8chan... They're badly laid out and they are clunky to navigate. I think people really want to connect with like-minded people and Parler is very much appealing to a particular demographic, although they say that it's about free speech and it's about a platform um, for anyone to say anything they want. That is literally one of the selling points that they put forward, that anyone can say anything they want, which sounds like a terrible idea to me. Uh, But that is something that has historically been a concern more for those very right-wing groups. So I think that, you know, those groups are feeling hard done by by other social media platforms where they feel like they're being silenced. And I think that people are potentially going to be quite motivated to have that platform to speak freely. Do we know who's behind it, Ariel? Uh, a fellow by the name of John Maitzi. I hope I'm getting that pronunciation <laughs> right. So he's obviously talked about uh, Parler being a platform for anything goes, free speech. Although it does have some rules. I don't think you can post about extreme violence. I don't think you can post about like drug use and things like that. So what about beheading are, Dr. Fauci? Do you I guess we'll have to see when the test arrives. And I reckon you're right. Like It's not like these platforms, uh, there isn't a strong flow of people into them and ugly platforms aren't a drawback, as you've pointed out, Reddit and 4chan and the rest are ugly and clunky. But the problem is for these platforms is that they are a little closed and there's no way to sort of propagate those ideas easily out into the bigger ecosystems. So Parler, last time it had a spike in popularity, I think earlier this year, all these people joined it. And then I went back a few months later to see what they'd been doing on it. And they'd all signed up, but they hadn't been doing anything on it. So they'd been like made one post on Parler once a month, but they'd been tweeting all day on Twitter. So, you know, I am curious to see really how it plays out. Is there an equivalent for lack of a better term, on, on the left hand of the spectrum, Angharad? Um, I think they're trying to appeal to a market more than solve a problem. I think that a lot of those right-leaning users view Twitter as the platform where all the lefties go. And I think they view it as a space where they are silenced and unwelcomed. Um, and that would probably be 
why they're looking for an alternative. And, you know, in the wake of Twitter putting these misinformation notices on Trump's Twitter in particular, I think that to them is a signal that you're not welcome here and the things that you want to say can't be said here. So I think in that regard, they are very much appealing to that group. Um, Even on their website, they say, uh, I think it's for their careers page. It says on it, think you have what it takes to make the internet amazing again. (laughs) So they are, you know, they're tapping into that rhetoric on purpose. Yeah, It is interesting. I I am curious about this newfound popularity in Parler and whether it will last and what that really means. So obviously we have seen in some of those more closed spaces online, say Telegram groups, even Facebook groups, private Facebook groups, uh, 4chan, 8chan, you know, all those other places which have a sort of high barrier to entry because they're not just the places where you de facto find yourself. That I'm curious about how they will uh, sort of continue, whether they will become, I mean, whether Parler specifically will become a place where we have to think about radicalisation, where these kind of closed ecosystems end up people talking to each other, inciting each other and uh, becoming more extreme. So that's something I'm curious to keep an eye on, on Parler in particular. Download this show is what you're listening to. Your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Angharad Yo, Ariel Bogle and Mark Fennell is me. We are about to see Fitbit subsumed into the Google universe. Fitbit, you might be uh, familiar with those little fitness trackers that people wear on their on their wrists. But there has been some pushback, Ariel. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in Europe, but also in Australia here, the competition regulator, the ACCC, is also looking into Google's proposed acquisition for Fitbit. I think they're actually meant to hand down a decision in early December But when you look at some of the issues they're concerned with, they point out the fact that Fitbit has pretty unique health and wellness data, you know, people tracking their heart rate, their activity, all that kind of stuff, and how that will work if it's sort of ingested by the Google giant, uh, whether it will lessen competition. And of course, the biggest concern really is that that health data will be subsumed by Google and used for advertising. Uh, They have pointed out that Google has said that it wouldn't use health and wellness data from Fitbit for advertising, but they also note that that's not a binding sort of promise. There's no rule around that. And Google has in the past shown a willingness to uh, change the game around how its data is used despite earlier promises. So I'm pretty intrigued to see what the HPC decides and the European Commission is also looking into this. I think it is a tricky one to regulate because, as Ariel said, there's nothing really there concrete that you can look at yet and say, you definitely can't do this because this is going to happen. Google can make that promise that they're not going to misuse the data. And whilst it's not binding, that's sort of the best that you can do at the time. It's There's maybe not enough precedent yet for it to be blocked, even though we all kind of know what's happening. Um, And at the same time, that is the problem that we've seen time and time again with these sorts of data misuse issues that we all know that it's happening, but there's not enough in place yet for it to be properly stopped. You know, these companies get off the hook by saying, oh, we won't do it again. It was an accident. Very sorry. Um, And we take this very seriously. So, I don't know whether they're going to be able to stop it from the standpoint of having precedent to stop it, but I think that they should because I think it's important, if that makes sense. Can I just put forward, I guess, a counter argument that 
I guess if Fitbit remains independent, it becomes more attractive to them to do deals with people that could be far more damaging to consumers like health insurance companies and things like that who could potentially discriminate with people against um, with certain conditions that are you know made obvious by the health data that's been kept. Whereas if they get subsumed by Google, that becomes less likely because Google's more likely to just use it for advertising. Please argue with me. Tell me if that theory is wrong, Ariel. Yeah, I mean, it is another issue, but it's sort of another speculative issue. Yeah, it's It's all very speculative. (laughs) Literally, that's the show, speculative problems. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, it's difficult because... At the same time, yes, there are a lot of different types of providers of health data out there and Google is already investing heavily in the health tech space. I mean, they have all kinds of projects. They are working with hospitals in the United Kingdom. Uh, there's a project from Google DeepMind, you know, using AI to process vast amounts of data that was, uh, you know, su- sucking up all these hospital records, which caused quite a bit of controversy. So it's not like this um, acquisition, whether it goes ahead or fails, will prevent Google from investing more and collecting more health data. I mean, but I think it is a recognition though, if we just look at the competition issues, that people are starting to realise that maybe companies like Google and Facebook were allowed to acquire too many small companies as they grew and that their market power has not come so much from, you know, making the best platforms ever and just building within their own companies, but from really clever and quite extensive acquisitions. Um, so, of course, Google's dominance in the ad tech space comes from, in part, uh, its acquisitions of the companies DoubleClick and AdMob. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of examples like this. So I think regulators around the world are realising that perhaps they were sort of asleep at the wheel in the past and are trying to rectify that now. Any Mark, th- I think you've made me feel like we're damned if we do and damned if we don't. I do believe that it's... is the number one thing the NBC pay me to do. <laughs> Because you're right, like, you know, if it is subsumed by Google, the other thing that, you know, happens with that is that you know the place to go if something happens. But if we have a bunch of little companies, it can be a little bit more of a game of whack-a-mole to try and catch them when they do something wrong. But if you have one really big company, they have a lot more power and influence and money in order to combat anything that comes against them. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm. Download this show. <laughs> it's the name of the program. And uh, lastly on the show, Netflix, Angharad, have invented television, it seems. Uh, they're Thank experimenting God. with a new idea where you would turn on Netflix and instead of picking a show, it would already be playing a thing for you, very similar to something called a television channel. Why oh, no, think- is this a thing, <laughs> uh, Angharad? I think that a lot of people, when we got um, free, uh, I think a lot of people, when we did get streaming and the ability to pick and choose whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, we got really excited. And it seems like the fancy new thing. And because there's a fancy new thing, the old thing now sucks. But. And, you know, you can take this with a grain of salt because I work in linear television. But (laughs) I think that there is still a bit of magic and something special about linear appointment viewing. And whilst I don't necessarily think it should be the only offering, there's something really nice about talking to your friend and being like, hey, I'm going to watch this show tonight. Let's watch it together and we can text each other or having the ability to live tweet along with a show. These are nice ways to interact with content that I think we've been missing a little bit. With appointment viewing, yeah, while everyone might more or less jump on a show at the same time, 
you can miss out on the boat or you can get spoiled for things because somebody else watched it first because they just had the time to. And I really like the idea of, you know, linear broadcast kind of coming back and being championed again. I don't necessarily think that it's going to end up looking the same as terrestrial broadcast has, you know, uh, it is a kind of 90 year old system for delivering content, but there is still magic there and there are still enjoyable things about watching content that way. So I should uh, say that this is something they've been experimenting with in certain markets. And my take on it was, um, Ariel, that one of the biggest problems you have when you open up something like Netflix is that you're just overwhelmed by choice and maybe something that sort of like guides you into watching something quickly can actually help you not feel so overwhelmed. Do you reckon I'm getting that horribly wrong? No, I reckon that's totally legit. There's a kind of endless scroll that a lot of people have on Netflix. I suffer from this too, where you just scroll forever and never really pick anything to watch. Um, So I am curious about this idea. I suppose, though, um, I also have enjoyed... (laughs) really uh, can advocate appointment viewing to an extent. I think like the last thing that we all joined in to watch would be Game of Thrones, right? Mm. But I'm guessing... Master like, Chef. Master <laughs> Chef, yeah. Junior Master <laughs> Chef, just to be different. But I'm, I don't know. I, I'd, I think I need more details about how this is going to work from Netflix because it could feel that appointment viewing thing if, for example, they had a new TV show and it would air, you know, 8pm on a Monday night on this... I don't know what to call it, Netflix's TV channel, (laughs) and then just ended up on the normal part of Netflix, something like that, where it was somewhere first and then ended up, you know, just in its normal catalogue later. I do feel like the big big name shows that they have that are unveiled weekly, so um, this will come as a tremendous shock to precisely nobody, but I'm a Star Trek nerd, and so at the (laughs) moment Netflix drops, you know, a new episode of Star Trek Discovery and there's like a a push notification saying, hey, new episode is launched, and Mm. so some of that, does persist, but it's mainly with the shows that they have um, licensed from people that are dropping them weekly as opposed to the Netflix shows that they drop all at once, like The Crown and whatnot. So I do feel like we're at this weird sort of like halfway medium, Angharad. Yeah, I think that, you know, they've kind of said that it's going to be playing content that is already on Netflix and I don't think that will work. I think that you're right. It's the space to be dropping something new and big um that then people can tune into and then it'll be archived on normal netflix later i think people are getting a little bit tired of binge viewing uh it can feel like this overwhelming commitment to stay on top of things and you have to watch it all at once so that you can talk to your friends about it so coming back a little bit more to that spaced out system could be really nice. And I also think it could be nice to have it not necessarily as a constant rolling channel, but having, you know, those couple of appointment viewings that you tune in, it streams then for everybody, and then it shuts down and it it gets archived. But it, it is something that, you know, needing to play with. They have introduced the play me something button Uh, on the splash screen where your profiles come up, you can just jump straight into a sort of shuffle system. And I think that they're really trying to combat that overwhelming feeling of scrolling through Netflix that I think everybody feels. I think that that's probably the biggest problem that their platform faces. Just to get the endless scroll back, I would advocate I just did this like deleting all your history and sort of starting fresh and just seeing what happens. I was just curious about what would come up and how how down my own algorithm hole had gone. Um, So interesting. I would recommend it. You know what's great? 
my dad will like see somebody else scrolling through their Netflix and he'll get upset that they get offered good stuff and he doesn't. He'll always be like, oh, Netflix always shows me crap. But all he watches is B-grade action films. So that's all they deliver him. And then he gets upset. Uh, it's your own fault, goddammit. That is all we've got time for on the show today. Huge thank you to Angharad Yo, the host of Good Game Spawn Point. Thanks for joining us back again. Thank you. And Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the rest of your spying day. Uh, And if you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to encounter us on. My name has been Mark Fennell, and I'll catch you next time on Download This Show.